the choices <clears throat> that we make today can have long-lasting consequences either for good or for bad. They have consequences not only for our own lives, but also for our children and even future generations as well. Saul makes some choices very early in his kingdom that are going to have long-lasting ramifications. So today, we see that it is the beginning of the end of Saul's kingdom. Saul's kingdom had just begun, but due to some bad choices on his part, his dynasty will not continue after him. That is, the kingship will not be passed on to his son. So this morning is that we want, the theme is that we want to consider uh, Saul's disobedience and grounds for the end of his dynasty. The kingship will not pass on. What lessons can we learn from that event? Well, first we look at the contributing factors to Saul's disobedience. The pressure upon Saul would have been enormous. You know, I think we can read passages such as this and let them just kind of roll off our back. It's tough to put ourselves, perhaps, in uh, Saul's situation. But I submit to you that he was under a tremendous amount of pressure. And uh, I think we can readily understand uh, some of his decisions. Nonetheless, they were not the right decisions. Uh, so some of the contributing factors to Saul's disobedience. First, Saul met a great challenge very early in his kingship. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, it reads, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And we had reigned for two years over Israel. So we ask ourselves, what does that mean? There's no small debate about verse 1. And uh, I don't always comment on textual issues. But when translations vary so differently... I think it's helpful for us to understand why. If you're reading from an NIV or NAS this morning, verse 1 reads quite differently. In the NAS, it states, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. NIV, very similar. Saul was 30 years old when he, began to, when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. So why is that? Translation so different from the ESV and the NIV? Well, I'm going to try to very briefly and distinctly address that as quickly and as helpful, helpfully as I can. There are two main issues to be considered. First is what is referred to as the king formula. There is an assumption on the part of some translators that verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 13 is a king formula in which the king, excuse me, in which the age of the king, when he begins to reign, is followed by the length of the king's reign. A king formula is very common in Kings and Chronicles, and it's also found in 2 Samuel. So it's a general way in which kings are introduced in the scriptures. For example, sample, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. So that formula is extremely common in the scriptures. 
Well, the assumption that is made by many is that verse 1 is indeed a king formula. formula. And as such, it creates some problems. It would mean that Saul was only one year old when he began to reign. And the problem with saying that Saul is only one year old when he begins to reign is quite obvious. And also that Saul's reign lasted only two years. The problem of saying that Saul's reign lasted only two years is that the book of Acts tells us that he reigned for 40 years, Acts 13, 21. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So those translators think that there are numbers missing in verse 1 in the Hebrew, and those numbers need to be supplied. And so uh, the numbers, 30 for his age, and 42 for the length of reign, are inserted. The second issue has to do with chronological concerns. Some see that the events that are recorded in chapter 12 could have not taken place only two years after Saul begins to reign. One such problem is the fact that in these verses, Saul's son Jonathan is old enough to be leading an army into battle. Some say that Jonathan's age cannot be reconciled with the fact that when Saul is anointed as king, just two years earlier, according to the text, Saul is described as a young man. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And so they say that uh, it can't square the fact that in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 9 that uh, Saul is referred to as a young man and here in chapter 12 he has this grown son that is leading an army into battle. In Hebrew, the word young man refers to a man who is in his prime. However, young is a very relative term. Take, for example, the President of the United States. According to the second article of the U.S. Constitution, the President must be a natural-born citizen of the United States and be at least 35 years old. The youngest president to be elected was John F. Kennedy, who was 43 years old, 236 days at his inauguration. Many people thought that John F. Kennedy was extremely young to be president at the age of 43. 43, to be a professional football player, is quite old. So young is a relative term. In a similar fashion, it is not unreasonable to think that a man in good health with a grown son could be thought of as being young to become king over Israel. So to put all your eggs in a basket over the fact that he's referred to as young is... uh, a bit problematic in my estimation. And there are some other chronological issues, uh, the major of which I will talk about later. But as I see it, uh, I don't think that there is any problem with understanding the Hebrew as being translated the way the ESV and the King James Version translate it. Uh, We don't have to alter 
the uh, translation for it to make good sense. 1 Samuel 13.1 says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. This is the time between the point of his being anointed as king to the fact that he is confirmed as king in the covenant renewal at Gilgal, which we just saw last week. So a year transpires from the time that he is anointed king until the covenant renewal at Gilgal. And then we are two years after that in the text. So two years have passed from the covenant renewal that took place at Gilgal. The nature of Saul's challenge was that there was going to be an impending war of great magnitude, starting at verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Deba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew his trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. This was an army like no army that he had faced to this point. This was by far the greatest threat to the nation of Israel. The people realized that they were in a serious predicament. For if they were attacked at Gilgal, they'd be unable to retreat, for the back was against the Jordan River. If you look at verse 6, it says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, this Hebrew word for hard-pressed means to be penned in. So as they looked at where they were in Gilgal, it was not the best place to be fighting a battle, for they were right up against the Jordan River. They had nowhere to go except to go forward. So when you take into consideration their locale, when you take into consideration the incredible difference in size of armies, let alone the equipment, which we will look at next week, uh, the result was the people were scared. The result was that they were scared. Many deserted. In verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. <clears throat> His army of 3,000 had whittled to 600 people. They were terrified. They were terrified. Now, just a pause for a moment of reflection and application. The irony of this is that the people had asked for a king in order that they would have a sense of security and safety. When Nahash had come against them, they said, give us a king, give us a king. And the thought was, if we just have an earthly king to follow, then our fears will be gone, 
Our troubles will be over. We've got a king, and all will be well. Now that they have a king, they were just as fearful as they had been before, if not more. There's a great lesson to be had there, and that is that sometimes we think that if our circumstance would be different, that we would not have the fears and the concerns and the doubts that we possess. Sometimes people think, if only I had more money, then I wouldn't be so worried about the future. The only problem is the more money you have, the more money you have to lose, and the more you have to be concerned about. We tell ourselves that the only reason that we have doubts and fears is because of the circumstances that we are in. Change those circumstances, and we would be a different people. When in reality, it's not the circumstances that mold who we are, but rather the circumstances reveal our true character. It shows the kind of person that we really are. The lesson is that if we can't have confidence in the Lord, then nothing will bring us confidence. There is no greater security in life than to know that God is on your side and that God is caring for you. If you can't have peace and comfort in that knowledge and that truth, you will never have peace and you will never have comfort for there is no greater security than to be found in God. But this brings us to the act of Saul's disobedience. Verse 9, so, so. The so is an introduction for Saul's offering, this burnt offering. It's the basis of the reason. It is all that has led up to this point. So Saul said, bring the offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. This was an act of disobedience that we're going to look at in more detail in just a moment. But before we do that, we look at Samuel's confronting of Saul over Saul's disobedience. At the very time that Saul finishes offering the sacrifices, Samuel arrives on the scene. Verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering. As soon as he had offered the burnt offering. If you look at verse 8, it says that he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So, he offered the sacrifices. It is Noteworthy that it's at the very time that Saul finishes offering the sacrifices that Samuel arrives on the scene. It says, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt sacrifices. So can this be some extraordinary timing of Samuel's arrival? Or is it mere accidental and coincidental? Well, the answer comes if you look at verse 10. It says, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, and now we have the simple little word, behold, 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 which means think about this. Don't miss it. Now, all the translations put that in there except the NIV. The NIV doesn't translate the Hebrew word behold, probably because they see it either as redundant or archaic. 
We don't usually use the word behold very often, and so they don't put it there, but I submit to you that it is of supreme significance. It's emphatic in the Hebrew. Behold, stop, think about this. The very day that he's offering these sacrifices, just as soon as he finishes offering the sacrifices, there is Samuel before him. Is this simply one of those examples of Saul's bad luck, or is there something of much greater significance taking place? Something that should not be missed and is integral to understanding what is going on here. Well, look at Samuel confronts Saul. Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? Why have you offered these sacrifices? Verse 11, Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, and he goes on. So Saul gives the excuses for his behavior in taking it upon himself to offer sacrifices for the Lord instead of continuing to wait for Samuel as was commanded of the Lord. And he gives four reasons of defense. We already kind of alluded to them, but look at them very quickly in the text. Four reasons that he gives as defense, excuse, of why he offered these sacrifices instead of waiting. First, because the army was falling apart, verse 11. Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, when I'm down to 600 people out of 3,000, because Samuel had not come as he was expected, and that you did not come within the days appointed, Samuel, it's your fault. You should have been here, you weren't. And aside, don't let that excuse throw you for a loop. I will explain that in just a moment. Number three, because Saul was not in a strategic place to go to battle, Verse 12, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal. And fourth, because Saul had not offered sacrifices to the Lord. In the middle of verse 12, and I sought not the favor of the Lord. So God would not be on my side if I didn't offer these sacrifices. I had no other choice. I had to do it, is what he's saying. There was no alternative. So we have Samuel's condemnation of Saul's conduct. Samuel did not discuss Saul's excuses. Instead, he severely rebuked him. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly, foolishly. You have acted in unbelief. You have acted ignorantly. You have acted as a fool would. Saul had acted foolishly in not obeying the Lord. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. You have violated God's word. Now the question is, what commandment had Saul violated? Commandment is crucial in this text. If you look at Verses 13 through 14, three times the commandment is alluded to. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Why? You have not committed the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For when the Lord would have established your kingdom forever over Israel, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to print 
be prince over his people, and once again, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded. So exactly what did the Lord command, and what did he command it? First, it would seem that the command is alluded to all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. And you probably don't remember that message, but when I gave that message, I mentioned the fact that in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, we read this. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you, and you shall <clears throat> show you what you shall do. I mentioned at the time that we were studying 1 Samuel 10, that 10, verse 8, seems to be a prophetic command foreshadowing of what's going to take place in the future. A clue that you don't want to miss. It was given in direct relationship to Saul's being anointed as king. So when Saul is anointed as king, Samuel says, you're going to get a command in the future. And you need to be obedient now to that command. Now is the time in which that command is applicable. Most likely, that command was repeated to Saul before the events that took place in chapter 12. Two years have passed, and probably that command came to him again, although it's not recorded in the text. But the essence of Saul's disobedience appears to be failing to wait for Samuel and taking matters into his own hands. For if you notice, it says, Saul had waited seven days, but it most likely is that he offered the sacrifices on the seventh day and did not wait until the end of that day. Samuel shows up right after the sacrifices are offered. So he waits the seven days for Samuel to come, but it's now the seventh day, and Samuel's still not there, and Saul says, what am I going to do? This is the seventh day, Saul's, Samuel's still not here. These sacrifices haven't been offered. The army is dissipating. All these troubles are on me. i got to offer these sacrifices. And he offers the sacrifices. And as soon as he gets done offering the sacrifices, there's Samuel. Just as he said he would be. Now there may be some aspects of this text that aren't extremely clear to us as we try to work on all the details about the command and when it was given and all that kind of stuff. It may not be real clear to us, but whether it is clear to us or not is irrelevant. The question is, was it clear to Saul? Did Saul know what he was supposed to do? And did Saul violate what Saul knew that he was supposed to do? And the answer to that is abundantly clear. That is, Saul knew very well what he was supposed to do, and he knew that offering these sacrifices was in violation of what he was to do. Now you say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 12. I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, Here are the key words. If you mark your Bible, it's a good thing to mark. It said, so I forced myself. So I forced 
myself. NIV, so I felt compelled. He forced himself to do what he knew he should not do. He made himself go against his own convictions and better judgment. I made myself do it. He violated his own conscience. He went against his own understanding. In the extenuating circumstances, he thought he had no other choice. He thought better of it. He knew it wasn't the right thing to do, but he said, but I felt like I had to do it. I made myself do it. You don't get, Samuel, how badly I didn't want to do this. <laughs> I, I really didn't. I didn't want to offer these sacrifices. I wanted to wait, but I just couldn't. And so I made myself offer these sacrifices. In some ways, you, you can identify with Saul and kind of feel sorry for the guy. At least I do. In these extenuating circumstances, he thought he had no other choice. He rationalized in his own mind, turning something bad into something good. Somehow he thought it was going to achieve God's pleasure that he would be disobedient to him and offer these sacrifices. Now, as an aside, all of Saul's assumptions were wrong. We'll get into that a little bit next week, but he's going to defeat the, the enemy with only 600 men. That wasn't the worst thing in the world. Okay? They don't attack him at Gilgal. He leaves Gilgal and goes and attacks them at another location. All of the presuming arguments that he makes, none of them are applicable. But you can readily see in his own mind why they were. The lesson here is beware when you think in life that you have no other alternative in life but to sin. There's always an alternative. That's obedience. Don't get yourself in a lather and say, you know, in this situation, I have to lie. I, I just can't tell the truth because of this, 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 or this. Or we have to cheat. Or we have to steal. I don't have any money. I don't have uh, any resources. My family's starving. And there's all these things. And, you know, that's it, you know I, I'll, I'll pay the money back at another time. And, and we rationalize and say, it's, it's okay. Uh, I'm just going to embezzle this money for a minute. I'm just going to borrow it for a short period of time. And then I'll get it back. We are never in a situation where we have to sin. That is pure rationalization on our part. We tell ourselves that in these extenuating circumstances, then it's all right for us to do what's wrong. So often we think that God will understand our situation and just simply look the other way. He'll just let it slide. What we're doing is not all that bad. It's not terrible. But we are not going to gain God's favor through our disobedience, no matter how we rationalize it. So we look at the consequence of Saul's disobedience. What happens? Well, these consequences are pretty severe. First, his kingdom is not going to pass on through Saul's lineage. 
the kingdom, the kingship in his family will come to an end. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. What does that mean? Jump down to verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That doesn't mean that he was going to never die. It doesn't mean that he was never going to come to an end as king. It means that his kingship through his sons would never come to an end. He would have a, a perpetual lineage. It's talking about his dynasty. One of the chronological issues that some commentators raise is the issue between chapter 13, which we have here, and in chapter 15. Because in chapter 15, verse 23, it says, For rebellion is as sin as divination, and presumption is as iniquity as idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. So they say, here we have the rejection in verse in chapter 13, and now it's repeated in chapter 15. And so they say, all the chronology here is just so messed up. It's just screwed up. It just doesn't work. Well, it does if you read carefully. <laughs> in chapter 15, Saul himself is going to be rejected as king. He's going to be removed. In chapter 13, it's your kingdom isn't going to be passed on to your descendants. Things are getting worse. Starts by saying, your kingdom isn't going to be passed on to your descendants. You end of chapter 15, <laughs> you're going to be removed as king yourself. Your kingdom's going to be cut short. So it all works just fine. But we find in this text that Saul is going to be followed by a different kind of king. If you look at verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Well, we know, of course, that that person ultimately is going to be David. Acts 13, 21. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said... I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. In our text, Saul does not yet know that David is the one. Even Samuel does not know that David is the one. That's going to be revealed much later to Samuel. But we know, in hindsight, knowing history and knowing the scriptures, that indeed David is the one. But here we're given some insight into God's disfavor with Saul. Why was this offering of these sacrifices such a bad thing? Well, first, Saul was not a person after God's own heart. The text tells us that. His offering the sacrifices was not an act of worship, but rather a means of manipulating God into giving Saul a victory over his enemies. It was political in nature. It was a way of keeping his army together. It wasn't out of an act of worship that he was offering these sacrifices. In fact, it was an act of disobedience on his part. God demands worship that comes from the heart, not lip service. A sincere love for God and a desire for his name to be praised is what God requires in our worship of him. 
repeatedly. Let me just give you a couple examples. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is commandment taught by men. Matthew 15, 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Just as our spouse can say, I love you, and then act in very unloving ways, so, too, it's easy to talk about our devotion and love for God. It's easy to say that we praise him, we exalt him, we honor him, we glorify him, only to live lives of gross disobedience to him. The two are incompatible. In the book of John, chapter 14, 15, Jesus says these simple words, but they're tremendously profound. It says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Real love for God is shown in simple obedience. Simple obedience. It's not the love letters we write. It's not the verbiage. It's all the praise that we, we say. It's not, it's not the things that we enter into. It's not our coming to even gather together for worship on Sunday mornings. It's not the giving of our offerings. It's simple obedience. That's the greatest way to show love for God. His lack of love for God is seen in his willful disobedience. He wasn't truly worshiping the Lord. The consequences of Saul's disobedience were not immediate in their full application, but certainly relevant to the future events. Knowing this removal of his kingship and passing it on to his son Jonathan gives us a great understanding of the ups and downs that are going to take place in the next chapters. This knowledge gives us insight into the events of the rest of First Samuel. This is what we refer to as informing theology. Things that are told us to help us understand future events. But there's an interesting thing about informing theology. And that is, it can raise questions for us when we know future events. For example, as we read this passage, now David's name never comes up. Just simply that God is going to give him a man after his own heart. But let me just ask you a question. How many people knew that that was David before I said it? How many people knew that it was David was the man after God's own heart? Okay, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people. We know that. And so as you read that text, you might ask yourself, how could David be said to be a man after God's own heart? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered. Isn't the things that David did far worse than the things that, that Saul did? How does that make any sense? How does that make any sense? I raised the question, but I'm not going to answer it. Instead, let me take this as an opportunity to talk about studying the scriptures, an appropriate approach to Bible study the tremendous importance and usefulness of informing theology. 
When those kind of thoughts come to your mind, write them down. Write them down. But don't just speculate. Just write them down and say, I want to find the answer to that. And then as you read future passages, look for the answer. Look what God says. Read when it says that David is a man after God's own heart. Where he says to Samuel, God looks on the, a man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks upon the heart. Take that into consideration and read it back into this passage. We're not going to do that this morning. We're not going to take that time. I'm just saying to you, that's the kind of discipline that we need to have. And that's the way we deal with theological questions. We want to be answering them from the text. Why was this such a big deal that God would remove Saul from a kingship that would pass to his future generations? Was this a rash response on the part of God? Why was the kind of king that the people wanted not suited to be established long term? You see, the people had said that that, uh, they wanted a king, like the kings around about them, and so God gave them that kind of king. Uh, He was wealthy. He was... uh, virulent, he was uh, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And yet he didn't prove to be a good king at all. Why not? What was more important than his physical traits? Was his obedience. Why would obedience, why would righteousness be such an important trait in a leader that God would deem them unfit. We live in such a day and age that that's almost mind-boggling to us. Doesn't seem like such a bad thing. Why, why is God making such a big deal out of the fact that he's doing a good thing here? He's offering sacrifices. And yet God's going to remove him as king? Our concept of a holy God, our concept of obedience is so warped that that doesn't make any sense to us. It almost seems capricious on the part of God. God ought to be happy that this king is offering sacrifices, let alone saying that his kingship is going to come to an end over it. So it makes us pause and ask the question, what is really important in a leader and why? What is important in a leader and why? That's the thrust of this passage. Including takeaways. First, what may appear to be rather insignificant acts of obedience can have far greater consequences than we would ever imagine. Things seem unrelated to one another. What does Saul's offering sacrifices have to do with the fact that Jonathan isn't going to be king after him? We find out it has everything to do with it. Jonathan is a fine young man. We're going to see that that Jonathan has a lot of faith. Jonathan is a good guy. 
Jonathan's a great friend to David. Jonathan, Jonathan. Jonathan is fantastic. It's not Jonathan's fault that he's not the next king. It's Saul's fault. It's Saul's fault. Sometimes insignificant acts of obedience are not all that insignificant. Things that we don't think matter really do matter. And our sins can really affect our children and, yes, even future generations. So never rationalize or make excuses for acts of disobedience. Never say to yourself, I know this is wrong, but I have to do it. I just have to, I just have to hold my nose. I know this isn't the right choice. I know this isn't the right thing, but I have no other choice. I got to go against my conscience. I got to go against the word of God. God will understand. People will understand my extenuating circumstances. They'll get it. It's okay. No, it's not okay. No, it's not okay. We don't live in this world of relativity. But rather, there are, in fact, moral absolutes. There is right and wrong. And while there may be insurmountable pressure, I mean, I get the temptation. I get how we get to the place where we say, in my situation, in this circumstance, it's okay. Well, I understand how we get there, but it's still the wrong conclusion. It's still not okay. Next, what can outwardly pass is an act of devotion when void of a true spirit of worship is unacceptable to God. This was an outward act of devotion, offering sacrifices to God, but he was doing so in disobedience. We can easily think that outward acts of devotion are acceptable to God even when they're not done in true spirit of worship, such as, it doesn't matter where you go to church as long as you go. Have you ever heard that? Well, believe me, if the church doesn't preach the gospel, it matters. If the church doesn't preach the truth of the word of God, it matters. It isn't just, do you go to church or not? It's, what church do you go to? It isn't just, do you believe in a God? The question is, what God do you believe in? Is he the God of the Bible, or is it Buddha? Acts of devotion, when void of a spirit of truth, is unacceptable to God. Next, our actions can have both positive and negative impacts upon our children and future generations. And lastly, there are defining points in our lives as individuals. There are times in which we make decisions that have incredible, long-lasting implications. Some of them are quite apparent. For example, who you're going to marry. All right? Who you marry is going to have 
implications for the rest of your life. Make that decision with your eyes wide open. When you enter into a marital relationship, think about the future. Think about living with this person the rest of your life. Think about them rearing your children. Think about, think about, think about. This has long-lasting implications. Some of those things are obvious. Some of them are much less obvious, such as in this instance. That's why we have to guard each day. That's why we have to be careful with every decision. That's why we have to seek to live consistently before God. Because some of these seemingly insignificant issues may rise up to bite us in the future. So be on your guard. Be on your guard. And then lastly, the word of God as it is given to us is the word of God. It always makes sense if you just take time to work through the issues. We can have complete confidence in the scriptures. And the sad thing here is that Saul did not have the confidence in God that he needed to have, and he took matters into his own hand. I wasn't going to say this, but but I'm going to go there because I didn't want to unpack it all. But there is just something that stands out in this passage. And that is Saul's unwillingness to wait. Wait. One of the hardest things in life is to wait. Wait upon God. Especially as things are getting worse and worse. Waiting for God to act. And, and you get to the point where you say, you couldn't get any worse than this. One of the things that distinguishes David is his waiting upon God. Time and time again, the circumstances seemed to dictate the fact that it was time for David to become king. Remember the the cave of the Dulem? All the opportunities he had to take Saul's life, and the people telling him, David, take Saul's life. And David kept saying, I cannot stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. He waited. He waited until the time was right for him to become king. One of the most difficult things in being obedient to the Lord is simply waiting. Waiting. Waiting for the answer to prayer. Waiting to see God's provision. Waiting to see the Lord's providing the way of escape. When your mind says there's no other way than to be disobedient to God. I have no other alternative. Yes, you do. Wait. Wait and see the provision of God. Samuel shows up right when the offerings have ended. Wait. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to wait upon you, to wait upon your word. Teach us of your faithfulness. Teach us of your provision. Teach us, O God, in our own rationalistic minds. When we say the word of God makes no sense, when we say that, Lord, there's no way out, 
when we think that we've got to come up with an alternative that is sinful and we know it's right and we go against, excuse me, we know it's wrong and we go against our conviction, we go against what we know what is true and we make ourselves do something that we know that is wrong to do. Lord, at that moment, intervene. Step into our heart's mind. Oh Lord, bring this passage to our recollection and help us not to violate our conscience, not to go against what we know to be right, but Lord, to persevere, to wait upon you, and to not act in disobedience. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.